Hello, this is Michelle Weston with Wellness Advocates Learning Curves 2.0. I'm talking to you from Radio 360, and I have a very special guest on this morning. One of my favorite people when I started to work in patient advocacy, I actually met her at, actually, let's go back. I actually met her because she worked on the book, the Bible for patient advocates to take an exam for certification. I'm going to mention that because it's really important, you guys. There's something called the BCPA, Board Certified Patient Advocate. Please look for that because that means we have sat and taken an exam, which is about ethics, which is about making sure that we are doing patient-centered care, which is making sure that there is a patient-physician relationship, that we believe in a whole person, because the world has changed in healthcare. We all know that. It is very hard to navigate through the landscape of patient advocacy. And since this show is about living with chronic conditions, whether that's something like obesity and you choose bariatric surgery or a medically managed weight loss program, or something like diabetes or high blood pressure or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. And for me, as you guys know, I have a neurological autoimmune disease. So working with MS and working with Graves and working with people with Wegner's granulatosis, what I want you guys to learn from this hour with me and my guest is that you're looking to make lifestyle changes. You have a chronic condition, which means that it goes on. It is chronic. Sometimes we have in today's universe, chronic conditions, plural. And so you may need a patient advocate and they should be considered your best friend, your advocate. They want you to understand what a doctor is saying when, you know, they talk doctor speak and sometimes they talk over their heads. They're not doing it on purpose. Doctors are really good, but sometimes they're not like nurses. Nurses speak in our language, in human language, and they know that a person doesn't always know as, as, uh, as Terry is laughing. So mm -hmm. as you hear her giggling, because we know Terry spent 39 years in nursing, and now she has spent the past 12 years as a nurse advocate and is the founder and owner of North Shore Patient Advocates in Chicago, Illinois. And she also, for the past three years, has Seniors Alone, which is a nonprofit organization, and I'll have her talk more about this. And she has an online service called Nurse Advocates. She has put together nurses to advocate for you. You can find out with me if she covers more areas than just Illinois, because many of us can do a trip tech. We can take care of, she could take care of Wisconsin and she could take care of Indiana or something. Just like here, I can do Connecticut and I can do New Jersey and I can do New York. I want you to experience conversations with people across the United States. Mm -hmm. I want you to understand that we're all over the place. I added wellness uh, support coaching because I wanted to be able to sit with people for lifestyle changes as well, because I believe in integrative services added on to 
biomedicine, which means medical services like medicine and so forth. So Terry Dreher, can Mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about your transition and why from nurse to patient advocate and where you found the whole? Well, thanks a lot, Michelle. And I'm very, very grateful to not only know you, but be invited onto your wonderful podcast radio show. And um, it's been quite a journey. As you said, I was a bedside nurse in big hospitals all over the country for 39 years. But when I saw all the changes coming down the pike that hospitals were making to get ready for the Affordable Care Act, a lot of them, to me, didn't really make a lot of common sense. They were um, shifting nurses and doctors away from the bedside, working on computers. And I saw a lot of gaps in communication and common sense was just starting to lack. And I remember saying to my nurse manager at the time, I said, this is not going to be good for patient safety. And we already had a serious patient safety problem in our country ever since 1999. The landmark study to Errors Human came out and showed that about 30% of patients that go into the hospital for healing undergo some kind of quote unquote adverse medical outcome. That's (laughs) some type of a medical error. It's either an allergic reaction to a drug, a wrong leg or breast being taken off, an infection, a fall. A lot of times older people will go in the hospital and get confused from sleep deprivation and they're understaffed in the hospital and people get up and, and uh, nobody comes to help and they might fall and crack their head and get a subdural hematoma, need a craniotomy, those kinds of things. And let's be honest, those kinds of things are happening a whole lot more over the past three years than they have ever in our country before. I've had multiple patients in the Chicagoland area. I call them clients because I'm essentially a consultant. They have just told me that going into hospitals right now can be like going into a third world country. People don't bathe you. They don't have time to teach you. Doctors do drive-by rounds and don't even come in and educate you. Nobody has time for that stuff anymore. And um, I am so glad that I, I hit a breaking point in 2010 where I just saw on a personal level and professional level, things were getting out of control and I couldn't morally, ethically, emotionally, or even physically handle working inside a hospital. One of the biggest changes that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me was being an excellent patient advocate and ICU nurse for years and years and I was very well respected by physicians, colleagues. I started nurse mentoring programs. I was, I was a model employee, but I, I had a patient that kept having complications. And this was in year 2010. And um, hospitals were getting more and more afraid of lawsuits. They were aware of the serious problem with patient safety, but nothing that the government was laying out really addressed or solved the patient safety problems. And it's still not, honestly, no matter how many computer programs that they develop to assure safety. The bottom line is the government really didn't talk to too many practicing clinicians when they developed the Affordable Care Act. They did things on an academic level without really understanding the the messy mix of what was going on at the bedside and what was going to work and not work. 
And it was crazy. So I had a patient, a very beloved patient. She was a minority. and Which is important. Yeah. Because you and I know this. Minorities <coughs> become second-class citizens, which is in 2022, the most, 2023, the most ridiculous thing. Mm-hmm. I think both you and I agree. Why, after mm-hmm. all these decades, after all these centuries saying that we have evolved, are they not treated the same way mm-hmm. as a, a, a white person is? And yeah. especially, I want to point out, because some of you may not know this, there are percentage-wise more black and brown people in the United States of America than there are white people. And that is because we're melting pot, mm-hmm. because that's what we are. She's in a big city like Chicago. I'm here in New York. And we know everybody puts on their socks the same way. Presidents and housekeepers and nurses and everyone. So when she, you hear her say this, her frustration is real. And I am so grateful that she saw this whole, you know, HIPAA is great. You guys sign that all the time, but it's also Doctors don't have any more time. They're busy entering more stuff into Epic, which is their records. And we're losing the opportunity to talk to patients. Right, Terry? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. And if you have a patient advocate, what happens is that you have someone who is making sure that doctors slow down, that if you're confused about what you need to do for the next six months or a year, they will ask and say, and I do it because I learned it from the advocates that I really look up to and treat as mentors, I will say, Dr. Smith, Miss Jones, I don't think it's clear on what you'd like her to do the next six months. Could you possibly reframe that for her? Now, sometimes you'll see a doctor get annoyed. I'm a doctor's daughter, so don't care. And I want him or her to stop and realize that if the patient doesn't understand, which they would love to comply to, right, Terry? They actually would like to comply, but Mm -hmm. if they don't understand, how are they going to be able to do what the doctor is asking? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, in this particular case, I'll I'll never forget this case as long as I live because it it pivoted me out of the hospital and into the quickly growing field of patient advocacy. My patient, and I tell the story in full in my first book called Patient Advocacy Matters, But the patient's name was Darla, and she had lovely family. I mean, she might have been a minority, but all of her kids had PhDs. They they were very attentive to the mom. They sat there. They were writing everything down. And she kept having complications. About the third time she tried to bleed to death in the intensive care unit, I um, went to the doctor very respectfully and asked him, help me understand what's going on, where the bleeding's coming from, why haven't we sent her for these scans, and, you know, this is scary, it's got to be something that we could look at fixing, and he got really defensive, almost threw a chart at me, and the next day, he transferred the patient out of intensive care, and later that day, the daughter came running up the hall to me and said, Terry, you have to do something, mommy's going to die, 
You know, she's laying in blood clots. Nobody has time to, you know, clean her up. Her blood pressure is 60 over 40. The nurse And that are, means that means it's not good, guys. So no. Terry, explain what normal blood pressure is so that people what, understand. About 120 over 80. Okay. Um, something like that. So 60 over 40, you're going into shock. And when you're bleeding, it's it's a hypovolemic shock. So your whole body clamps down trying to conserve the blood to the heart and the brain and the vital organs. But if you're being left with a blood pressure that low, you're in danger of getting kidney failure and all kinds of problems. So anyway, I went to my nurse manager and I said, you have to go down and see what's going on. She needs to go to the interventional lab and get a study and find out what's going on. The nurse manager went downstairs. She came back up and she shrugged her shoulders and said, yeah, the doctor doesn't really want to send her back to intensive care. And so at that point, I knew he didn't want to send her back to intensive care because they had a smarty pants nurse um, named Terry Dreyer who knew what was going on. <laughs> and and so, so anyway. Thank God, right? <laughs> yeah, I did what any good nurse would do. I called uh, the hospital administrative department and asked to speak to risk management and the CEO and the risk manager came down and pretty quickly they they did what I asked. And I went down to the interventional lab with my patient and I gave her six units of blood while we were down there and held her hand while they were doing the study. And when I brought her back up to ICU, she sat bolt upright and vomited up about a gallon of blood clots. And then we coded her for three and a half hours. So now I've got the surgeon's attention, you know, so he's running back and forth, screaming at us to go faster and faster. And and because she's about ready to die, we had to put her on life support. And during that critical period, when I had to run out and get some morphine to, to put my patient in a more comfortable state while we were intubating her, I forgot to scan out a dose of narcotic. So the patient survived that episode. But what was worse was that he sent his mid-level practitioners, PAs and nurse practitioners, to look through the chart the next day and found that I had forgotten to scan out a narcotic. Okay, Nobody... you guys, I'm going to stop for a second because this is really important because Terry is always has been a brilliant nurse. What you're hearing goes on today because drugs are locked down. In fact, we've now, mm -hmm. you have to enter codes to get into that room. Everything, you cannot open anything unless a nurse or whoever's in charge of the pharmacy on the floor where like things like morphine are. This is where we are today. Mm -hmm. And when you are trying to advocate and be there and quickly respond for your patient, for God's sake, do you think any human may miss a step like, in, you know, like putting that in? But notice the reaction today. Well, let's sue her. Let's fire her. Let's say it's all her fault. That is why you want an advocate. You mm -hmm. want someone to step in and say, okay, I got it. I actually worked 30 odd years here, but this is where we are today. So she's sharing this story that I'm going to let her continue because. The landscape of healthcare today is about privatized medicine, correct, Terry? And yeah. privatized medicine is about making money. But that's a really hard thing to do when it's about human lives. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's really true, Michelle. And, and I want everybody to understand that big, fancy, expensive hospitals aren't making money hand over fist. The way before COVID, hospitals were only operating on average nationally at a 3 to 4% profit margin. The rule is go big or go home. You're going to go out of business unless you merge and, and consolidate your expenses. But let me get back to the story because it's important for y'all to know that this, every time I tell the story to an audience of nurses, dozens of hands go up. They all know this happens in every hospital in the country. If nurses become whistleblowers, they're going to try to fire you because you're a liability. So even though they say they want nurses to be patient advocates and they say they want doctors to be patient advocates, the landscape in America right now is so dangerously tilted towards profit because hospitals right now are hemorrhaging money because of COVID. And, and so I get their problem, but back in 2010, when I saw that my beloved patient was about ready to die. I did something about it. And so I almost got fired. I didn't get fired, but they did pull me off the unit the next day and make me do a urine drop, which basically means they were testing my urine for morphine. And I was so angry. <laughs> I, just, I think we all would be right. Yeah, I mean, really, yeah. like you had morphine and you yeah. used the, the morphine for yourself <laughs> instead of your patient. It was crazy. So anyway, I, I was just so I just said all the way up to the occupational health department, I said, go ahead, fine, do urine drop. I'm not on anything. And I'm going to want an apology when this is all over. I was focused on the patient, not the computer. And so you should have known in a three and a half hour code when I was giving 25 units of blood that mistakes were going to be happening, but nothing happened that, that didn't save the patient's life. So anyway, at that point, they let me sit at home and stew in my juices, hoping that I would quit for 10 days. And I didn't quit because I hadn't done anything wrong. And so eventually I came back, but I... I I never felt the same way about that hospital again. I mean, I, I had won awards at that hospital. I had gotten outstanding yearly evaluations. In fact, I had had a um, nurse manager two years earlier that on my annual review, she said, Terry, what's your five-year plan? And I said, what do you mean five-year plan? I've got two kids in high school doing travel team hockey. I'm playing, paying the mortgage. I've got a daughter in theater. I am the major breadwinner in our family. I don't have a five-year plan. I'm trapped. And she said, you should really look at the field of patient advocacy. And it's a thing now. And I said, oh, really? So on that 10-day stint, when I got to sit at home and ponder the direction of my career, I looked it up and I found that in 2008, different organizations were formally coming together and becoming a real genuine new specialty in healthcare. And, you know, 12 years ago, when I started my company, I'd go into hospitals and people would get a little defensive, like they thought I was a lawyer. I said, no, no, no. Think of me like a community care manager that's going to help take care of this patient. After they go home, this patient does not have any family. So I'm the closest thing they have. 
And so now when I go into hospitals, even big hospitals, downtown Chicago hospitals, I am so respected. And doctors and nurses want to know more about what I do. And they say, I wish every patient had a patient advocate. I wish everybody did because they can talk medical language to us. We can interpret. We can follow up. We can make sure people are compliant with their treatment regimen. If they can't afford medications, we can find sources for them. We can untangle insurance things. We lower their stress. We fill all the gaps in healthcare, and we make them feel valued. Patient after patient today, Michelle tells me, they feel like they're on an assembly line. They don't <sighs> understand what's happening. and They don't want to look stupid, but they just go from one person to a another. And sometimes they're treated very disrespectfully. But doctors and nurses in hospitals today, quite a few of them are burned out. We know very much the, so. Very yeah, much so. Yeah. And they've been like PTSD, like, you know, Vietnam War going through COVID. And when, when they have to deal with angry patients and families all day, every day, it hurts their heart. They're going through moral stress. And many of them are leaving the field. And so that's why during COVID, I developed Nurse Advocate Entrepreneur, which is an online training program that teaches nurses how to start their own private business as a professional patient advocate and how to become a board certified patient advocate. Everybody that I've taught this course to has passed their BCPA exam. And so it's a real field in healthcare right now. We're not the enemy. We're collaborative with healthcare people in the hospital, but we also will stand up and ask all the right questions, questions that people with average U.S. health literacy don't know to ask. You know, like I will ask to look at the chest x-ray. <laughs> you know, I will ask what the labs are. I will ask about patient rights violations. I mean, many times in Chicago, for instance, during COVID, big hospitals were telling us, oh no, we don't let families in to see people. But our governor in May of 2020, Governor Pritzker, had worked together with the Center for Adults with Disabilities to develop a strong guideline in Illinois that says, if a patient has a cognitive or behavioral health disability, they have a right to have a patient advocate at the bedside. And we had a lot of seriously ill people with underlying diagnoses of different mental illnesses without family. So if they go into the hospital and they don't even know what to ask, their anxiety levels go off the roof. So a couple and times- then they become and then they become non-compliant, correct? <laughs> yeah. Which is the furthest thing they are yeah. from that. And even Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's patients, we're dealing with neurological conditions on both right. mental health right. and mm -hmm. neurological uh, Absolutely. You know, conditions. So imagine being confused and then everybody says, oh, she's really, he's really difficult. She's yeah. arguing. They won't let me. And it's like, wow, if a patient advocate was there, Mm -hmm. And understand, I'm not a nurse, okay? Mm -hmm. But I will always find out, even when people come to me, if I think they need a nurse advocate 
or a doctor advocate for mm-hmm. their case, I will always reach out to somebody. It's so important to understand mm-hmm. what the landscape is for that patient. If it's somebody that I can handle, I'm not going to know like her to ask to look at x-rays and blood work because I can't read it the same as this woman can, as mm-hmm. this nurse can. But we know our limits and we know what we're brilliant at, correct? Right, exactly. And I think, I think experience, street smarts, carries a lot of more weight today in healthcare than education. I'm going to be totally honest here and just tell you, I am the least educated person in my company. I hire nurses, doctors. They all have their master's degree. I have a three-year diploma RM, but I've always practiced higher than the level of, of my ability. I always asked a lot of questions. I was the kind of person that stayed after work when I was 22 and went on rounds with the med students and the attendings and stuff. So I've always been just really hungry for learning. And I've been hired by doctors to be their you know, nurse clinician because they knew that I was street smart. I understand a lot of things that average nurses don't. And so I knew in 2010 that that was going to be valuable because I could see that patient safety was going to suffer with taking doctors and nurses away from the patient's bedside. And it truly has. During the height of COVID, I remember this one lovely Irish family, 14 children were living with their mom in a nine-room apartment in a low-income area. And she had dementia and she fell and went into the hospital and they tested her positive for COVID. And so she was essentially neglected. She was languishing in the hospital. She was losing weight. She wasn't eating. And when I, they hired me to advise them, they were afraid their mom was going to die. And when I called and asked about her labs and her eating, and she was getting bed sores and it was horrible. The kids were absolutely bereft. They loved this mom. This mom raised like 14 children as a single mom after her husband left them. And so this was a very special person. So so <laughs> I used a little common sense. I mean, she was 93 years old, but I talked to the kids and I said, the only way we're going to get her out of the hospital is to tell them that we're going to go on hospice and um, we'll use all the financial benefits from hospice. But if she improves, then she's got more quality of life. We all know she's going to eat better at home with all of her Irish kids um, sitting with her, (laughs) giving her teaspoons of fluid all day and everything. So she did. She lasted four months at home and she ultimately died, but it was a good death. She had a lot of- Can you explain, this is really important because I remember Mm -hmm. from my classes for my master's of patient advocacy, what Uh does it mean to have a good death? uh, Thank you for asking that question, Michelle. So a good death is where people are at peace. You know, the patient's at peace, the family's at peace, and they're going to do everything necessary to keep that person emotionally, physically psychologically protected and nurtured. When 93-year-old dementia patients are in the hospital and they don't know why they're there and they are separated from their families, it's like torturing them to death. 
It's inhumane. So when I worked in intensive care, I worked at a cancer hospital for the last 23 years of my life. And it used to be a really fine place to work. It's where I developed a real strong passion to treat all of my patients like they were my mother or their their father. Things, things changed when big business rolled in the door, but I understand that it had to change. But when I knew that somebody that came to our hospital for healing was not going to make it, because I have that sort of second sense as a nurse, I can tell down to the day or sometimes hour close to how many hours or days people have because I'm, you know, that Sherlock Holmes show where he's got his hat on and he'll, he'll walk in and start smelling things and looking at things and noticing things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's, that's what I do. And so when I know that somebody needs to be honest with this family, I'm thinking of one, again, more minority patient whose family called me because their patriarch of their family was in a hospital with COVID. And at first he was doing real well. And then two days later, the doctors were coming and saying that they needed to take him off life support. He was going to die, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He was in kidney failure. He was um, in a coma. So I went down to this hospital <laughs> and just kind of walked into the COVID unit with the family because I knew that patient rights were on my side. And I came in and I walked in the room and I looked at the drips and I looked at the vital signs and I looked at the machines and the settings on the machines and the fact that he had no urine output and his pupils were fixed and dilated. And I went over and sat down without even talking to the doctor. And, and I talked to them about code status because this man was probably going to have a full code within a few hours. And in case people have never seen somebody have a full code, a code blue or a code you know, red or whatever they call it in different hospitals is called when somebody's trying to die. So then the code team runs in, they shock people's chests, they sometimes give intracardiac epinephrine, they pump on their chest, they break people's ribs. It's a very undignified way to die. And I walked in and I saw this... 58-year-old man with fixed and dilated pupils on continuous dialysis on a ventilator at 100% with high levels of pressure. And then I went and talked to the head nurse and saw the labs. And I was appalled that nobody had had an end-of-life discussion with this family. And the doctors were kind of just treating them like they were stupid. They didn't understand. But what I said was, this is what's happened. This is why it's happened. And your dad is going to, his heart is going to stop within the next few hours. And we need to decide right now whether you want people to come in because he's already on two forms of life support. Do you really want them to come in and shock his chest and do all these other things to him? Because that's not going to be a good last memory for you. He's not going to make it. <laughs> First of all, they'll so come in are, and do it. Are you it. talking about also, I want people to realize something because this is leading to another important. Uh -huh. You're talking about a health proxy. You're talking about end of life plans for planning to say, 
DNR, what does DNR mean? Do not mm -hmm. resuscitate. Mm -hmm. No intubation of fluids. These are conversations that sound overwhelming to probably all of us, most of us. Yeah. But you have to have these conversations yeah. while that patient can tell you what they want. Please right. don't think that you're being omniscient. Mm -hmm. You are giving control to that person to say, let's write it down. Because yeah. I don't want you to struggle with what I want as your mother or father or as your sister or brother, as your yeah. spouse, right? And it's not... It's not woo-woo. It's so important because that means mm -hmm. you're taking control. And here we are with COVID. My goodness, listen to when people say, do you have a health proxy? Mm -hmm. Do you have a plan? It doesn't mean you have to have a million conditions. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. you have to have some grave thing like kidney failure. Just realize we're trying to make sure you, mm -hmm. as the patient, as the person, are always in control. We want you to be mm -hmm. in control. So does the doctors and nurses. They sign off and sign up when they become doctors and nurses to the Hippocratic Oath. They say, we will do no harm. That's why I study bioethics. We will never do harm. That means we will go to all extents to save you. But Tara will tell you, what does that mean to save you? Perhaps uh -huh. That isn't what it is. No. And if somebody's never had that conversation in certain families and cultures, that's a difficult conversation to have, especially when you're only in your 50s and you've been a hard worker your whole life. This guy was poor. He didn't have, you know, the money to go to a lawyer and set all that up. He had no chronic medical conditions. He just got COVID and things went from bad to worse. So when I sat down, and by the way, he was unvaccinated. Did you hear that, you guys? Yeah, he was okay. unvaccinated. Did you, did you all hear that? Because I know you all have your opinions on this. Yeah. But I want you to realize, studying public health, because I didn't do nursing, public health is about protecting everyone, not right. just the United States, but the world. Right. We give vaccines to help everyone. When I wear my mask, I wear it for you. I don't wear it for me. I wear mm -hmm. it for you. When you put on your mask, you do that for me. Yeah. And so if we understand we're doing it for each other, vaccines, uh -huh. I know you're all like, I, this isn't good. They've been working on vaccines forever, for decades. This mm -hmm. particular COVID, they've been working on for at least 10 years. You just don't know that because you don't work with the CDC, the mm -hmm. Center for Disease Control. You don't know that NHI, the National Health Institute, they have been working on this forever because they foresee like terry said she has a sixth sense they have a sixth sense that something's coming mm -hmm. yeah and in this particular case it was it was a uh, it was very sad and it is controversial i get that i i had a 53 year old brother die from covid last year because he refused to take vaccinations and even when he knew he was positive he still didn't go to the hospital so I lost a, a young brother, and I understand the pain that that leaves to people. I've had COVID twice myself, even though I'm fully vaccinated and boosted. But, you know, it just means your chances of dying are way, way less if you do get it. That's all. And people can make their own choices. I have people in my family that have chosen not to be vaccinated. So I'm not going to get into any kind of political thing with that. Me but neither, are, but just understand, yeah. right? 
you yeah, have to understand the big picture. So yeah. what we're asking you to do is look at the bigger picture. You'll mm -hmm. make your decision. I am not here or Terry's not mm -hmm. here to tell you what to do, but understand and take the time to do some research and listen to both sides of the argument. Right, Terry? Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I know we don't have too much time left here, Michelle. So I'm going to just um, wrap up this story with this gentleman and then just give a big picture look about why I'm so passionate about patient advocacy. I, <laughs> I firmly believe that I'm not going to retire until I'm pretty sure that every patient in America knows that this field is available and I'm going to keep on doing everything that I can. I mean, I've, I've chaired three Chicago patient advocacy symposiums and two international conferences on patient advocacy. And I'm going to do another one this summer because I'm absolutely passionate about helping more people become patient advocates and more healthcare consumers know that patient advocacy is available. Not all patient advocates are super expensive. And I just want to say, everybody says, oh my gosh, I can't afford private pay patient advocate. But then I think, well, what's the worst thing that could happen in this scenario? Are you willing to save a couple thousand dollars and try to do this yourself when you don't know what you're doing? <laughs> you know, and I, I know people are very focused on money these days and everything, but most patient advocates give discounted rates for low-income people, and nobody in America wants to think that you have to privately pay a patient advocate to be safe, but I'm just going to tell you, it's a very good investment. You get no do-overs with your family, and just think, what is the worst possible thing that could happen if I try to figure this out on my own, even though I don't understand healthcare? Just to have a consultant come alongside you and take the time to tell you truly what your options are and what the pros and cons are of every option and to be your champion. When I walk into hospitals now with a patient, doctors know right away that patient takes their healthcare safety extremely seriously and they spend more time talking and educating. They're a little bit more careful. <laughs> And those consents are going to be signed after I've had a time to look at them and ask all these questions that, you know, patient advocates that work inside hospitals know all the dirty little secrets in healthcare. And, you know, to me, there's a lot of ethical challenges out there that healthcare consumers don't know about. It, it just really makes more and more sense for people to have somebody that can take a second look because if patients get a bad diagnosis they're so emotional their families are so emotional absolutely they often don't ask really really important questions because healthcare is changing so quickly the rules patient rights are being violated and and patients in america need to know that our industry is available if they so choose if they want to spend the time and effort and frustration themselves with something. But I tell everybody, if you know you're in over your head, this is the best money you're ever going to spend is hiring a patient advocate. And there are patient advocates that are medical, non-medical, 
Some of them are disease specific. Some of them are really good at insurance negotiation. Definitely. And I remember last year I saved a young man $60,000 because he had let his insurance run out and then he got in a real bad accident. And his mom called me and hired me because there's no way this day laborer guy could pay a $60,000 hospital bill. So, you know, sometimes if you spend a few hundred or a couple thousand dollars to get really good advice and have people do for you what you can't do for yourself, you're going to look back and say, man, I got an extra 10 years with my dad. You know, both my parents died of cancer. One of them, my mom, was because she was misdiagnosed. She would still be alive today if she was properly diagnosed. And, you know, most people don't have a doctor or nurse in the family. And most people don't have somebody like you, Michelle. You know neurological illnesses and the questions to ask and the studies and all that stuff out there way better than I do in your area. And And vice versa on a lot of things that I will call you, Terry. And that's what I love. But I I love that, that we should connect. And we are not enemies. We're not disconnected. Patient advocates align with each other. We cannot do everything. We are Uh in different states. Sometimes Uh we can cover, you know, I can do Connecticut and New Jersey and New York. Sometimes Terry can go into Wisconsin or, Mm. but she has a team there. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to revisit this. I'm going to have other patient advocates here. I'm going to have a doctor. Mm-hmm. Seema Khan's going to come from, from uh, uh, Seattle, Washington. Oh, excellent. Yeah, so, I've worked with Seema. <laughs> she's amazing. Mm-hmm. But I want also, I'm going to say this because you talked about hospice. I also want you guys to understand mm-hmm. what hospice means today and mm-hmm. what palliative care means today. Because in your minds, you think that it's the end, the end. In no. a ugly way, it's actually very different than what you think. Yeah, and I want, exactly. right, right. Yeah. And we'll revisit it, Terry, because there's mm-hmm. so many things to talk about. But Terry was my first patient advocate I wanted on because mm. she knows how to tell a story and she knows how to make sure that we all can understand we've been in this situation, we are in this situation. Mm-hmm. And, or we've seen other people go through this that we know and love. So with chronic conditions, mm-hmm. patient advocates are your best source. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say something about patient advocates in hospitals, and I hope I don't get in trouble, but I'm going to say it. Patient, <laughs> I know, but you're going to agree. You're going to agree. Yes. Patient uh-huh. advocates in hospitals. Remember, guys, and I'm not saying that they're bad, okay? Please don't think that. Mm-hmm. They work for a CEO upstairs, Okay. And the most important thing is to make sure that people go home and get out of the $10,000 a day bed as quickly as possible so they can put another person in. They're not rushing you out, but they're rushing you out. They're more like clerics many a day, and they are collecting, you know, the extra money, the the money that's going to come from your pocket for, you know, seeing certain people and doing certain procedures. I want you to also remember cycling for bills, invoices must go two to three times. Correct, Terry? Don't pay a bill just because you get it. Okay. If it comes and you came out of the hospital or you just had something, make sure that your health insurance has gotten to the bill. Okay. Don't pay the $2,500 bill. Do not do it yet. Make sure it cycles. 
And we'll also talk about surprise bills because mm -hmm. here in New York, I've had to deal with surprise bills when suddenly you get a bill and you're like, I thought this was covered. Why didn't they ask me about this, right? They actually have laws about that now. So, you know, mo most of the general public doesn't know all the different laws that have been enacted over the past 10 years to protect patients. And, and why would they? I mean, they, they just want to trust. Everybody, I think the American mindset is, is at a point where they're having to kind of go through a shift and, and realize that if you want, just like every country in the whole world that has ever gone to a single payer system or a socialized form of healthcare, every single country, certain people, the educated or people that have more dispensable income have always risen up and said, no, I'm not going to accept that. I'm going to pay a little bit extra to get what I know that I need. And when you know that you're over your head, you just need to be humble enough to say, okay, I need to call somebody in, even if it's for an hour, hour and a half. One of the big things I've been dealing with this last three years is adult children that are watching their parents age poorly in their own home and they won't listen to them and they're falling and having cognitive issues and they don't know how to have the conversation about when it's time to move. I just uh, met somebody in Cicero down by Chicago a couple of weeks ago. It's, um, you know, three adult children that were there with their 89-year-old mom with mobility issues and a lot of swelling in her legs and a house that was falling apart. And the woman was very concerned about money. But <laughs> when you have the conversation from a perspective of knowing what the resources are out there to help low-income people, you can help them save tons of money. This woman has serious leakage problems in her basement you know, and her roof is leaking. If she doesn't sell the property while it's still worth something and she slips and falls and trips and nobody can get to her right away, it's not only a life-threatening situation, it's also compromising her financial capacity for living in a low-income assisted living um, facility. But, you know, I had the conversation. I gave them five or six really quality referrals. And, and sometimes people just have to percolate on that information and know <laughs> that their family loves them and doesn't want to see harm come. But sometimes you have to have those conversations in a very loving way, six or seven times, and then something will happen. Somebody will fall and break something or, you know, have have something that doesn't end up killing them. And then the kids can come in and say, okay, mom, it's time. We're foot, putting our foot down. But it's hard because adult children are always fiercely clinging to their autonomy and their home, their safe space. And adult children are always concerned with safety. And sometimes they start nagging and no person in their 80s wants their kids to start treating them like babies or like they're feeble somehow. And so those are delicate conversations to have. But fortunately, at least in my, my profession, nurses have a high trust factor. So sometimes I'll tell people the same thing 
their kids have been saying for 18 months and they'll believe me because I'm a professional. <laughs> Thank God, right? You step in and go, oh, yeah. And the yeah. kids sort of shake their head. Mom, I've been telling you for 18 months. And you're like, right. Right. Yeah. But yeah. you know what? It's so important. And this is why we took mm-hmm. the time today. And yeah. we'll, we'll circle back and revisit this. I'm going to speak mm-hmm. to Lisa Berry Blackstock, who is, who is an expert in hospice and palliative yeah. care. She really is awesome. Works Right. So, yeah. It's, and I, as you hear, I've got people and you're probably going, well, why is she talking about other patient advocates when she's one herself? Because I'm no fool. And I know <laughs> I don't do everything. And I, I really depend on my circle of patient advocates across the country to help everyone. This isn't about me. You know, it can't be about me. It's about the common good. Mm-hmm. And that's why I started with Terry, because she really understands us. We're in big cities. I am so tired and exhausted from people in low-income situations being treated like second-class citizens. Yeah. I, yeah, I know in New York here, our mayor is going to start throwing more people into mental health institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see, Terry, we'll see how that works. I don't know mm-hmm. who's making those choices on the streets of whether they need <laughs> How do you how do you do that? Uh, my husband asked me, how do you do that and just commit someone? I said, well, you could send a social worker, but I don't know yet because that's a delicate situation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I mean, America has different principles than a lot of other countries around the world do. We really prize autonomy and independence and we have so many strengths and everything, but I can see both sides of that coin too, because I can see the angst and the pain that families go through. You know, I, I have a situation with my own son who has some mental illness problems. He's been in the hospital 42 times this last year. And I know he needs to be in a long-term place, but in the state where he is, patient rights rule over patient safety. And so sometimes that's a real moral dilemma. And when people are going in and out of the hospital 42 times in one year for the same problem, you get to the point where you feel like, okay, well, he's going to end up in prison or he's going to die. And why can't common sense come back into healthcare? So I think, I think there are some people that really can't function independently. And America has an obligation to provide some kind of safe housing for people that can't make rational decisions with their own life. But I, I do know it's, it's awful to try to force people to live the way they don't want to, because the first pillar of medical ethics is autonomy. People need to have agency over their own lives. But if you go to the court, you know, nine or 10 times in one year, and, and the court system is still focusing on patient rights over autonomy. You know, I remember sitting at a hospital ethics committee, hearing crying in front of the psychiatrist saying, you know what's going to happen if you let him go again. He's already told you what he's going to do. You know, so how can you ethically let this happen? And he said, because he's of age and he has a right to make his own decisions no matter how many people he's hurting. So yeah, we have a real problem that has escalated during COVID of um, people with different types of mental illness that 
that our government really has no way of of helping right now. So there there are a lot of moral and ethical issues that have risen to the forefront in patient advocacy. But I want to tell your listeners right right now. As our last thought, I think it's important because I can hear that. So please share. I just want to say, just search, use Google and search patient advocates near me. And you can also go on gnanow.org, greaternationaladvocates.org is founded by my friend Brad Schwartz. He's a lawyer that lost four different limbs to medical error, and he has a big database out there. Health Advocate X has a great database. The Alliance of Professional Healthcare Advocates has a database. There are databases all over the place for patient advocacy organizations that you can go to and just use the search bar and put in your zip code, and they'll give you a list of all the patient advocates by you, and you can read their bios. You can call them directly. We all give 30-minute free consultations by phone, and we all refer to each other. So if I know somebody comes to me with a big, scary insurance issue, that's not my wheelhouse. I'm going to refer it to somebody else. And so we all get together in the advocacy world about once or twice a year to meet each other, see people face-to-face, learn together, grow together. And I'll let you know, Michelle, when the next Chicago Patient Advocacy Conference is going to be happening because COVID really messed things up for everybody. And some <laughs> it of us, really did. <laughs> some of us did not get to um, see each other for a while. So I miss you. I miss you too. <laughs> I, I, I thank you for this great opportunity to today and um, just reach out to anybody. If you want to reach out to me for somebody in Chicago, it's www.northshorern.com. And um, I'm going to put this information up, Terry. Okay, good. Listen, readers, listen, uh, listeners, I am going to get all of these dot coms dot orgs she's talked about on my website for mjwellnessnavigator.com. I'm going to put this information up with Terry's information. I want to also share her Patient Advocacy Matters, her first book, Mm -hmm. um, for you guys to be able to start being educated for your parents, for yourself, for your spouse. Whomever, maybe you know someone, a friend that needs that. But that's what this hour is about. It's making sure with chronic conditions, you are in the driver's seat, getting the best people to help you with a lifestyle change, with a chronic condition, with a terminal condition, to live your best life and also mm-hmm. have a really good death. And I know that sounds crazy, but mm-hmm. man, oh man, when you see either side, right? A bad right. death and a good death, Terry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want people to to be able to understand, and it's at any level. Yeah. Whether you are low income, we want that. Whether you have lots of money and you're able to do that, everybody has those rights. Yes, America is about autonomy, but I also mm-hmm. want you to know people are around that you can reach out to to help mm-hmm. you. Yeah, absolutely. And every situation is different. That's why this is the greatest job in the world. We get to customize options for every single family in America. And yeah, I've seen a lot of good deaths and bad deaths. And the family is left with a lot of regret and heartache when it's a bad death. So so anyway, I'll leave you with that. And I'm so grateful. It was a blast, Michelle. I love it. um, I'm always happy to talk to you anytime. 
A pleasure. Okay. I will call okay. upon you again. Have a good holiday season and enjoy. Enjoy how much you do for others. And listeners know that we're out there for you. 